This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The following is a presentation of A's Cast, your free 24-7 nonstop destination for A's baseball. Go to athletics.com slash A's Cast to download the app. Restrictions apply. From baseball's top personalities. The great Chris Russo joins us once again. To the game's top players. Joining us is the all-star. Matt Chapman with us. You never know what stories you're going to hear. If you make your way down here, I, I might be able to make some time and go out there and see the great Chris Townsend. This is A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. Welcome to another edition of A's Unfiltered with Chris Townsend. And we're going to have a lot of fun today because... Our old friend Sean Doolittle is going to stop by, the now World Series champion. We're going to talk to Sean Manaya as he, you know, like many of the A's, putting some money out there to help frontline workers. It's very special, and we'll talk to Sean about that. Even his girlfriend is working on the front lines. We'll have the legend, the A's Hall of Famer, Dave Stewart, and we'll have Sandy Alderson, one of the great executives in A's history and in baseball history. But we're going to start with our old friend, Sean Doolittle. As you know, on A's Cast Live, we've been trying to bring people on who have that familiar voice. Well, obviously, this guy, he will always be a great Oakland athletic. His story is unbelievable. He's a World Series champion. He's a two-time All-Star. He now has 111 career saves. But as we have always said, he is such a great guy away from the field as he's always trying to help people have a lot of respect. Here's our old friend, Sean Doolittle. Now joining us here on A's Cast Live, he was a terrific A, and we rooted for him all the way through the World Series. He's a two-time All-Star and now a World Series champion. The great Sean Doolittle is back. It's great to hear you. How are you down in Florida? What's up, Tony? Thanks for having me. Um, we're doing okay, man. We're we're hanging in there. We are uh, we're safe down here in Florida right now. Uh, once the season got delayed, it just really felt like less moving parts to get all of our stuff and our dogs home. And you know, we weren't sure about the timetable of of this delay. So we're staying here in Florida. We can I can take advantage of the weather and and get outside and improvise workouts and try to stay in shape. So uh, we're doing okay. You know, they've been airing games from 2012. And it's amazing. You look like you're like you're like a little kid out there compared to what you look like now. <laughs> and that's how I felt, too, man. I mean, everything, um, you know, I was 25 uh, during that run. And um, I, I might have turned 26 by the time the season ended. Um, I forget the timeline. My birthday's at the end of September. So, um but like everything, the the route I took to get to the big leagues, um, I was just so happy to be there, and everything was so new. I was I was so bright eyed and um, just kind of in awe of everything, and trying to soak it all in and enjoy it as much as I possibly could. I felt my whole uh, I've I worked my whole career to try to get that mindset back, man, because I was just so in the moment and, and enjoying every second of it, and 
soaking it all in. I will never forget you coming up. I did your first radio interview, and I remember telling you, this is like a Disney story. I mean, here you were supposed <laughs> to be the first baseman. I mean, that every you know, we followed you through the minor leagues. We thought you were going to be the guy. Then all of a sudden, your career's done. Then all of a sudden, you're pitching, and you <laughs> rode through the system so fast, and all of a sudden, you're up throwing in these meaningful games. You've only pitched one year, and you're pitching in huge games. The story is actually crazy when you look back. It is. It, it, trust me, like I, it's given me an incredible amount of perspective um, looking back on my career and, and uh, thinking about how close it all came to almost not happening for me at all. And I'm incredibly grateful um, for the A's, the way that they handled my transition to pitching, uh, the way that uh, I, I worked with, with Garvin Alston all summer in 2011 in Arizona when I was uh, handling a, a wrist injury and um, shoot, even just the the growth I went through in the big leagues in 2012. You know, when I first got called up, um, I wasn't allowed to pitch back-to-back games for like the first like month or so that I was in Oakland. And, and I look back on it now, the the and I think about maybe the the stress I might have added onto some of the other guys in the bullpen to pick up that slack. But, you know, by the end of the season, I pitched the last four games in a row and um, that growth, um, the confidence that Bob Melvin showed in me um, really laid the groundwork for my entire career. Yeah. And, and, and it was such a fun time because at one point the A's were like 13 and a half games back. And it was like, just reel in the Rangers, just get them there for that last series and sweep Mm -hmm. that series. And it's the only time in the history of baseball. Think about this. The only time in the history of baseball where a team won the division and they never, they won the division and never led the division because you didn't lead the division until that final out, the final (laughs) game, 162. It's crazy to think about. It is. It's crazy to think about. And the way that we did it, um, that year in 2012 with all the walk-offs. I mean, I've never been a part of anything like that um, really since then. There were there were a number of similarities uh, between that 2012 A's team and the 2019 Nationals team that went on to win the World Series. Um, the hole that both teams, we kind of dug ourselves in the first half. I remember in 2012, we got back to 500 um, the day before the all-star break um, and with the nationals in 2019 um, that was like our goal. We, we were, we were so um, we had dug ourselves such a big hole in May that that was kind of like an arbitrary goal that we had set for ourselves. Let's get back to 500 at the all-star break and then see what we can make happen in the second half. And uh, we were, I think we were able to get maybe three or five games above 500 by the time we rolled into the break but the, the way that momentum carried over to the second half, there were a lot of similarities there. We didn't, the Nationals team last year, we didn't have the walk-offs. Uh, we didn't have the, a, a lot of the drama um, and exciting, um, you know, come from behind wins that the 2012 A's team did. But there were so many similarities there where you get that feeling late in the game. Maybe it's the sixth or seventh inning and the game's kind of hanging in the balance and you're, I'm sitting down there in the bullpen and, and everybody has the same feeling where you're like, 
I don't know how we're going to pull this off, but we're just, I know we're going to find a way to, to pull, to, to pull this game out. I know we're going to find a way to win. Um, and so the, there's a lot of similarities there that, uh, you know, Zuke and I talked about uh, quite a bit. So it was fun to kind of go through that again, but all those walk-offs, man, I've never been a part of anything like that. You know, your teammate, Kurt Suzuki, and I go way back. I remember one of my favorite interviews with him was in Japan, and I know what it meant for him as a Japanese-American to play in Japan and how much the crowd loved him. And then, you know, a few years ago, he was with the Twins, and I was interviewing him in the uh, dugout, and he was talking about Townie. I think this is it for me. I'm not going to play. And I'm like, are you going to coach? What are you going to do? And to think that, He's now still playing after that conversation. I'm like, wow. Recently, we just had shit because we're, we're covering every single team and we're, we're getting ready. You know, we're going through every single division and we went through the East and we had Chip Hale on who, you know, been your coach for many years. I, I can tell you, Ace, yeah, we hate the Astros, but more importantly, we were just rooting for you guys because you guys are Oakland A's and Kurt Suzuki and Chip Hale and yourself. It was great to see you guys win the World Series just, just looking back, I mean, how special! I mean, you're a World Series champion now. Uh, I, it's so there's so many there's so many cool storylines about like our World Series championship um, that make it you know feel even more special than I ever could have imagined. And and one of those for me is is my connection with Zook. Um, you know, he caught my debut in 2012, and I, I worked with him so well early in my career and, and he was a big reason why he kept putting uh, you know a number one down and he kept calling for the fastball and he's such a big reason why I was able to develop um, some confidence early on in my career because hey if, if you know Zook had a reputation at that time of being one of the, the better defensive catchers in the game and and he I saw him always the first one to the ballpark and he was doing so much preparation and putting together game plans and scouting reports. And he knew the opponents better than uh, anybody. And if he had the confidence in me to, to continue putting the number one down, um, then I had a lot of confidence throwing it. And um, ultimately, you know, fast forward to 2019 and I'm sharing a, a, um, a bus with him during the world series parade going down constitution Avenue in DC and, um, you think about the, 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 the road that both of our careers have taken since the, that first time we worked together in 2012 and for us to come together again in DC and win a world series and share a, uh, a bus in the parade. It's just, it's incredible, man. You can't, you can't script it. You can't make it up. Uh, but it definitely was one of those things that made it feel so incredibly meaningful and so special that was beyond anything that I ever could have imagined when it comes to the emotions of winning a world series. You know, you're one of those guys that uh, you're a better person than you are a ball player. Cause all the things that you and your wife have done for people over the years, I say the same thing to Liam Hendricks, you know, some people, you know, they just want to make their communities better. And you're one of those guys. And I think being in DC, very interesting for you. How many like big time politicians, uh, celebrities, do you run into when, when, you know, whether it's at the ballpark or beyond the ballpark playing in Washington, D.C.? 
Um, not as many as I, as I thought that there would be. Um, and the team, so like the team kind of keeps that stuff or at least that part of DC very separate, I think from the team, um, and maybe gives the players, um, it maybe gives the players some protection, I think, um, from that, uh, you know, so like, it wasn't like I thought it was going to be where like, you know, there's like, there's not, it's not like there's like congressmen on the field uh, during batting practice, you know, like standing behind the cage and stuff like that. Um, but there are some times where, um, you know, they, they might say like, Hey, um, you know, so-and-so is here. Would you like a chance to meet them? And they'll take you to a, a another spot. Uh, maybe it's a little more private and, um, maybe give you some of that protection. But um, I got to meet um, one of the highlights for me. I got to meet Sonia Sotomayor, uh, Supreme Court Justice, uh, uh, later last season. I think it was in September. And that was that was really, really special to me. I got to meet John Lewis um, uh, from Georgia, um, civil rights, civil rights icon. And, and that was really special. Um, you know, but there's also, there was also some really cool people I got to meet there in the World Series run. Uh, we had Bill Nye at the stadium at Nats Park. Um, he's DC native and Nats fan, which for me as a nerd was, uh, was really, really special. Um, Jose Andres, um, a celebrity chef that does a, he does so much in the community and he has a lot of ties to DC. Uh, he threw out the first pitch before game five and that it was really special to meet him. Um, Dave Bautista, which people might know from WWE, or they might know him from Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, he's a Nats fan, uh, DC native as well. Um, and that was, so that was really cool, but you know, that's, it, 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 I don't know. It, it, it was, um, world series run. It's all part of the experience. So, um, I was trying to soak it in and, and enjoy it as much as I could. You know, I was just there in February. We did the, like this history tour with my twins. We went to the White House, the U.S. Capitol building. We did all the Smithsonian's. We went out to Mount Vernon, George Washington's house. It's just, it's, D.C. is such a special area. It, it, it's, and then we went up to Philadelphia and Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell and then on to New York. But, you know, just to, to learn all the history, it's like I always advise people, you need to go for yourself and you need to take your kids so you understand how this country was built. I totally agree. And and there's in D.C., um, before I had ever got traded over, my wife and I had rolled through there a couple times um, in the off season. Uh, we would be back on the East Coast um, a couple times. I We were either going to or from a trip that led us to the university of Virginia and uh, we stopped in DC for a couple of days. And I mean, the museums there are too free not to take advantage of. I mean, yeah. as a, like I said, I'm, a, I'm a nerd. I, I'm a history geek. Like I love that kind of stuff, but um, you know, I think it's, I think it's important if people get a chance to, to head there, check it out um, the national mall and, and everything like that. But I would, I would encourage people to venture out beyond that. Um, my wife was the first to bring it to my attention. She said uh, once we got traded there in 2017, that she really felt a lot of similarities between DC and um, Oakland or, um, you know, the, the Bay in general, um, the, the pride that people have for their communities, uh, the way that they fight for their community, um, 
the uh, the energy and the creativity and the way that these people are investing in in their city and their neighborhoods, uh, trying to revive them and, and bring them back. There's a there's a lot of similarities there. So we fell into it. We fell into it seamlessly, and and uh, we've been very lucky. You know, we had your wife on, on our program. She was becoming like a TV star in the Bay Area. Is uh, she still, <laughs> she's still doing media? No, no. The, the closest thing that, that we've had since um, since coming over here to the to the Nationals and the organization, um, <laughs> we've and it's kind of a product of of the time that we're living in. We we started a fake talk show called It's Lit, um, where um, uh, during the quarantine, we the episodes have been uh, posted on the Nationals Twitter and Instagram pages and. Um, you know, initially at the beginning of the season, the nationals came to me and said, would you be interested in doing like a, a video series about some of the books that you've been reading, uh, given some reviews and some insights. And so I said, yeah, sure. And so like once the quarantine hit, they, they asked me for to submit a video and <laughs> we came back with a, with a talk show type situation where Aaron was peppering me with questions and, we were riffing uh, and doing some some jokes and stuff like that, and I didn't I don't know if that's what they signed up for, but that's what they got, and I've, we've been lucky that they've embraced it. They've continued to post the shows, so um, you know, like I said, it's more of a product of the time that we've kind of found ourselves in. You know, let's end on this. You guys, I guess, have decided as teammates that you don't want to do the ring ceremony which is always one of the great things. I mean, you have this ring that you celebrate and world series rings are just, they're the best that you guys don't want to do that celebration until fans can be a part of that. I think that's pretty cool because mm-hmm. I know, you know, baby shark and everything that you guys had, which was incredible, but your fans were such a big part of what you guys were able to accomplish. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, um, I've talked to um, some for maybe former teammates, friends of mine, guys I've played with that have won World Series themselves in the past. And they all said that um, the the World Series really crystallizes in your mind and, and really comes into focus when you finally get the World Series ring. That's like the last thing. But the run through the playoffs and the World Series – it, it happened so fast. Um, it, it's just, it's so, there's so many emotions and there's so much adrenaline that there's a lot going on and it takes a long time to sink in um, after it's all done. And you, you know, you spend the off season try, trying to really come to grips with what it's like and what it means to be a world series champion. Um, for me, I had been a part of some really good teams, um, division winning teams that had won 95, 97 games. Uh, that never made it, unfortunately, past the first round of the playoffs. And for me personally, I was starting to wonder if this was anything I would ever get close to. Um, and I was like, I just don't, there's so much that has to go right, that has to go your way. It's so hard to do. And for us as a team, uh, this was everybody on the team. This was their first World Series this was our first ring. This was it. We were all going through this for the first time. The only other player uh, on the team that had a ring was, was Hunter Strickland. Um, and he, he wasn't on the active roster for the world series. So everybody that was on the active roster for the world series, this was their first ring. We had a couple of guys that had played in the world series, but nobody had won it. Um, and I think 
the way that this team connected with the fan base in D.C., um, the way that the fans turned out for the World Series parade, uh, it wouldn't feel right to celebrate this one last time without them. So um, it'll be worth the wait when we do get those rings. Um, it'll be it'll be worth the wait. It's going to be a special celebration. You know, it's the first World Series in Nats history. You know the organization is going to pull out all the stops and do it right. So um, it'll be worth the wait when we finally get to get to see them. Nobody's seen them. Nobody's seen the rings. Um, the organization kind of kept it a secret. They had uh, only a few people uh, at the top uh, of the organization that were working on the, the designs and that really had um, an idea of what they're going to look like. So it's going to be a, a really cool surprise when we finally get to see it for the first time. Well, as someone that can actually say, I've seen you from the start to watch you grow as a baseball <laughs> player, uh, to watch you grow as a man and knowing everything that you and your wife do away from the field to, to make people's lives better. Uh, I, I, I'm a huge fan and it's great to have you on. And what we've been trying to do is bring on familiar voices because I think it, it helps heal people as we got a lot of A's and baseball fans listening here in Northern California. And obviously you're a familiar voice. Thank you for coming on. Be safe, be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me, Tony. Um, I honestly, uh, I, I, I say this uh, as genuinely as I could possibly say it, that I, I wouldn't be at this point in my career without um, the time that I spent in the athletics organization. So I always have a special place in my heart for the green and gold. And um, I, I continue to follow the team and, um, you know, uh, I like I said, I, I appreciate you having me on. I hope everybody out there in the Bay in California is staying safe and, and staying healthy. And hopefully we'll have uh, baseball for you guys at some point. From a former A to a current A, Sean Manaya, he's good people. And he's reaching out to help people on the front lines, including his girlfriend. For his career, he's 35 and 28. Of course, what he did on April 21st, 2018, pitched the no-hitter against the Boston Red Sox. No one will ever forget that. Shamanaya is a good guy, and we always love having him on the program. Well, now joining us once again here on A's Cast Live, it's the big left-hander, Sean Manaya. Last time he was here talking about his no-hitter against the Boston Red Sox. Now he's delivering food to people who are out there busting their you-know-what for us and the frontline workers, whether it's Oakland, EMS, or firefighters in San Francisco. Sean, thank you for coming on again. And, and by the way, what a great gesture by, gesture by you to do this for these people who are putting their lives on the line for us. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's just a small gesture and, um, you know, it's the least that I, I can do for, uh, for everyone. So it's, uh, you know, I'm glad I could help, um, you know, in a small way. I know you're up in San Francisco recently and it, you know, what's it like these people's reaction when they get this gesture from you, what is it like? Uh, well, so my, uh, my girlfriend, she works, uh, she's a, um, EMC right now, but a paramedic for uh, San Francisco fire. And, um, yeah, I don't know when I told her that I was uh, thinking about doing that, you know, she was, uh, just really excited and, um, you know, she's, you know, tell me that, uh, everybody else would be, uh, ex you know, excited that, you know, we got recognized too. And, and, uh, you know, these guys are out there on the front lines and, and, uh, you know, doing, putting in work. So it's, uh, um, you know, for me, it's, it's, uh, you know, nice to give back in, uh, just this, this little way that I can. 
You know what's so special about it? And I, and I know you say it's a small gesture, but really for them, it just goes to show once again how much people appreciate them. And you're seeing this all over the country where people are applauding them as they come from work or go to work. And this gesture that you have done lets them know that we're thinking about them and we care about them. And I think that's why it's so special. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, it's you know, pretty much everybody else is, uh, um, you know, without a job right now, not doing anything. And, um, you know, besides that, I mean, they're they're out there uh, facing this this virus out there on the on the front lines, pretty much. So it's, uh, you know, it's crazy that they're, uh, um, you know, out there and, and doing their thing. But, you know, it's, uh, it's all part of the job. But, um, you know, I just thought it was a uh, you know, simple way to uh, show that that you know, we Thinking about them and that they, uh, you know, deserve deserve some recognition uh, for all that they they do for for us to keep us safe and and uh, yeah, just everything like that. Yeah, I'm really proud of you guys, the Oakland A's, and we had Liam on. He did the same thing, and you know what you guys are doing. You show you really care because in a time like this. It's just it's special when athletes reach out because so so many times it's the the fans applauding you. It's like a it's mm-hmm. it's like a reversal role here. It's like you're now applauding people. It's like a total different deal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, you, like you said, it's uh, usually the other way around. But um, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, we're we're just baseball players, and um, you know, I guess we put you know uh, you know smiles on people's faces for uh, playing a game. But um, you know, these these guys are uh, you know doing some real stuff out there and. Um, confronting something that is very, very real, and and uh, you know putting their um, you know lives out there on the on the line. So it's uh, you know it's crazy, a different perspective, and uh, you know I really just you know appreciate everything that they've uh, they've done so far. Have you been following Baseball Reference, where they're simulating the season on a daily basis, and how the A's are doing, and how you were doing? Uh, no, I have not. Actually, never even heard about this yet. So definitely have to check that out. So they're they're doing every single game, and okay. you, by the way, you pitched yesterday. Oh, you, cool! Yeah, you went eight Marm, shutout. You're gonna love this. <laughs> you went eight shutout innings against the Rays, and you struck out eight and got the victory. Your record right now, and I wonder if you would take this. You're four and one with a one point eight two ERA. <laughs> um, you know what? Uh, I think I'm. I, I will take that. That sounds like a, a pretty good year to start out the year so far. Oh my gosh! Especially against those guys. Um, yeah, definitely need some uh, some redemption. You know what I mean? Oh, no doubt about it. I knew you'd love it. And the uh, the <laughs> A's right now are twenty and fourteen. They lead the division by two. So e- e- even the simulation says that the A's are going to have a good team this year. <laughs> Yeah, man. I, mean, I think we, uh, you know, we all believe it, and uh, you know, um, if this thing says says anything, and you know, have a season, then uh, you know, let's get to it and uh, make this thing for real. So right now, how, how are you keeping in shape? How are you keeping the arm in shape? How are you throwing? Who are you throwing with? Uh, right now, just um, you know, I uh, um, find like uh, find some places to work out. Usually, uh, just do some body weight workout. Uh, stuff uh, usually like a park. Uh, me and a couple of the guys from uh, from the A's, we've been throwing uh, together. We just got together on our own, and and um, um, you know we pretty much just meet meet up every day and then uh, and throw. And 
um, you know, I usually come back home or work out at the, the park that we go to and uh, just do some bodyweight workout stuff, do a little bit of running. And then uh, usually like I'll do some uh, extended stuff. I usually go on a walk and, um, you know, I usually get uh, more of my cardio for that. But um, yeah, really, it's just uh, just doing that stuff, throwing, um, you know, trying to get into some other stuff like, uh, um, I don't know, doing uh, some like yoga, doing some, uh, some other stuff like that. And then, uh, um, yeah, really just using this time to, uh, try and do, learn some more skills, um, you know, learn Spanish, um, doing all that stuff and, uh, just trying to keep my mind occupied and, uh, you know, obviously think about season, think about pitching and doing all that stuff and, uh, you know, just really taking this time to try and better myself in, uh, every way that I can. That's great to hear because that's one thing we've been asking everybody, like, what are you doing a deep dive on, whether it's a certain book series, it's Netflix, <laughs> you know, that's one thing we've been asking everybody, like, like, what are you doing to pass the time? So you've learned Spanish. Uh, I wouldn't say I definitely haven't learned it. Uh, so the very, uh, very beginning stages, but, um, you know, I've definitely uh, been committed to it. Uh, I'm just doing Duolingo right now and, um, you know, there's been, I've, I've had it for a while, um, but I just never actually stuck to it. So um, today will be day 21 uh, on a hot streak. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, you know, I've, you know, some days I'm, you know, I'll do like power two. some days, you know, just do like five minutes or whatever I can get in. And, um, but I think the important thing is that I've, you know, stay consistent and at least for these, uh, these 21 days, um, just, uh, just done it every day. And um, that's something I haven't actually done before. So in that aspect, I'm pretty, uh, pretty proud of myself. Um, I wouldn't say it's, uh, go, you know, it's going very, very slow right now. But, um, you know, as long as I keep doing it, then uh, all I can ask for. You know, I, I did two years of Spanish in high school. I was so bad at it. And growing, and growing up in San Diego, you know, we went to Tijuana all the time. And uh, mm-hmm. I realized as long as I could say cerveza and el baño, I was good. <laughs> <laughs> you know how to, uh, yeah, you'd be able to work your way around there. Yeah, that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so you know how hard it is to throw a no-hitter. And on this day in baseball history in 1991, Nolan Ryan would throw his last no-hitter. It would be hmm. his seventh no-hitter. And check this out. He was 44 years old. I mean, that man's just a, a walking just, I don't even know the word, like, hyperbole uh what like he's just a he's a legend all the stuff that he's he's done in, like accomplished in his career like it's it's crazy that he's able to uh to last that long you know i think he, what do you have like 26 years 27 like, 27 <laughs> i mean i'm 20 like that's literally my whole life that he uh he pitched in the big leagues that's crazy <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm looking at this like his last year was 1993. He was 46 years old. He had 807 starts. I mean, it's crazy when you look at his numbers. And then also on this day, Ricky Henderson would break Lou Brock's record for stolen bases. And we've been Mm -hmm. going, we've been going these legends. I mean, the numbers that you see, you go, you look at Nolan Ryan strikeouts. No one's touching that. How about Ricky Henderson? He stole 1,406 yeah. bags in his career. Yeah, I definitely don't think that's going to be broken uh, at least anytime soon. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's just like a unobtainable like goal. You know, like that's, that's unheard of. That's unbelievable. 
Um, yeah, it's crazy that, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, when you look at the, like all the numbers and like all the crazy stats that are in baseball and then, you know, like the, the home run records and the hit records and, and all that stuff, like, it, yeah, it's just mind boggling, um, to think like all that stuff happened and then like that high of a level, it's just, it's wild to think about. Wow. Yeah, he he played 25 years. He holds the record also for 2,295 runs scored, which is mind-boggling. You get to be around mm-hmm. him. How much have you ever been able to interact with Ricky Henderson, the Hall of Famer? Uh, yeah, I mean, he, he shows up around the, the clubhouse all the time. Um, you know, I, I, uh, I don't usually play cards that much, but I know he's always uh, like in the clubhouse playing cards, whether it be like Casino. I think Casino is one of his favorite games. Um, just because it's like a, a 1v1 kind of situation. And, uh, you know, I think he likes whooping up on some of the, uh, the younger guys and, um, <laughs> you know, just uh, um, just talking and, and stuff. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, every day I, like, I, I see him, it's like, oh, he's just uh, another another guy. Um, you know, he just shows up around the clubhouse and, uh, you know, meshes in with the, uh, the guys. And then, then when you, like, realize it's, like, Ricky Henderson, you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, this guy's a – you guys to go, you know, um, for what he's uh, been able to do for the game and, you know, what he's, uh, what he's accomplished. It's, uh, yeah, it's pretty, pretty fun having him around. And, uh, you know, I get a, you know, talking back with the family members and stuff. It's, uh, you know, they're pretty jealous that I get a, like I'm able to, um, you know, interact with, uh, with Ricky Henderson. It's pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah. That's one of the great things about baseball is we always honor our great players and bring them back. And, uh, Ricky is, uh, if you're ever going to have a conversation, who's the best of all time, he's going to be in that conversation. Hey, thank you for stopping by. Uh, uh, What you're doing, it means a lot. It really does. These first responders need our love. And, of course, your girlfriend is one, and she's a hero. And what you're doing for these heroes is something very special. And we just all want to say thank you because during this time, you know, we need people to step up for the people who are protecting us, and, and we're doing that, and you're one of them. Be well down in Arizona. Take care, and we'll talk to you later on. Sounds good. Thank you very much, guys. That's been a lot of fun watching so many of these A's reach out and helping people in our community. Our next guest is an A's legend. He's a three-time World Series champion. He's a World Series MVP, two-time ALCS MVP, won the Roberto Clemente Award in 1990, AL wins leader in 1987. He pitched a no-hitter June 29th, 1990. He's an all-star. He's in the A's Hall of Fame, and he's known as one of the great big-game pitchers of all time. Dave Stewart joined us on A's Cast Live. Well, now joining us on A's Cast Live is an all-time A's great. He's in the Athletics Hall of Fame. He's a three-time World Series champion, a World Series MVP, two-time ALCS MVP, Roberto Clemente Award winner in 1990, and he led the American League in wins in 1987. It's always great to have him back on the program. The great Dave Stewart is with us. Dave, thank you so much for taking the time. I appreciate you having me on and thinking about me. Thank you very much. Well, what we've been doing is we've been trying to bring on familiar voices, and obviously your voice is one of the most familiar for a a lot of A's fans, and, of course, the work that you do for NBC Sports California. Uh, And on NBC Sports California, we've been honoring the 70s teams, which you've told us back in the days used to sneak into the Coliseum to watch these teams. And these teams were great as they won three straight World Series 
When you look back as a kid growing up in Oakland, what did those teams mean to you? When I was a kid, you know, initially I watched the Giants because there were no A's. Then the A's came to Oakland, um, and they were not very good at first in 68. Um, and even in 69 and, and building that team into um, the, the 70s, they were not a very, very good team. Uh, they were a team that obviously I watched because now they're right down the street from my house and I had the easiest ticket in the world to get into, which the easiest ticket in the world, which was to hop the fence and all of a sudden I'm in the ballpark. So for me... <laughs> The A's were entertainment, and they were entertainment. They were the first team in baseball with white shoes. They had the gold socks. Uh, Charlie O'Demule, at the time that the team uh, came to town, they had uh, the bunny rabbit behind home plate that had the baseballs in there for the umpires. It was entertainment. Um, It was a great place to go and watch baseball. And then they had a championship-caliber baseball team. Their pitching was intact. They had great offensive team. They were exciting to watch with Burke Campaneris running the bases and stealing bases. They were just an outstanding team to watch play um, from 72 going forward. Who was your favorite player? My favorite player... Uh, was actually the first A's player that I ever had an opportunity to meet was Reggie Jackson. Um, I met Reggie um, by by fluke, actually, and Reggie probably can tell the story as good as or better than I can. He, he caught me um, sneaking in the stadium, and he uh, turned his back to the infield and just kept his focus on the right field. I was in the right field seats hiding out, and any time a ball came came into the seats because you know the gates weren't open, uh, me and my cousins we were reaching our heads up and popping up to grab those balls and put them in our bags. Um, and then Reggie finally said to us, "You know, old man Finley is gonna gonna put you out of this place. You 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 better you better watch out what you're doing." And my cousin uh, Daryl at that time said. If old man Finley was worried about us being in the stadium, he'd have security out there to keep us from getting in here. And then days that same night, Rick Mundy hit a home run. And we were um, on the other side of the stadium waiting for Mundy to come out to sign the baseball, which he refused to do. And I told him about that when we were teammates in, in, in Los Angeles. <laughs> and uh, then minutes later after he left us, Reggie came out and reminded us that how he met us and and uh, wanted to actually give us a ride to our bicycles, which we had chained up at the Union 76 station, which we declined the ride. And for days after that, Reggie drove down our block and eventually uh, started leaving us tickets for the game. That is awesome. That is such a good story. And I got to think for you as a guy that grows up in Oakland, what was it like for the first time for you to put on an A's jersey and to be in Oakland A? It was an unbelievable experience. Um, I I never thought that I would have an opportunity to 
play in my hometown. I played against Oakland and played against the, the Giants when I was with the Dodgers and with Texas. Um, played against Oakland, but to actually have an opportunity to come home and play in the stadium that I spent a great part of my childhood growing up in and watching the A's and admiring their teams and their players and being a fan of the A's, um, is uh, that's an unbelievable experience and very few players have had the opportunity to actually play in the town that they grew up in. And there was something about you in the big games. I mean, obviously we can talk about the 20 win seasons, but the big games, the playoff games, the matchups, we always think about you up against Roger Clemens. What was it like for you in those big games where you stepped up and you led your team to victory? Oh, you have to want to be in that situation, first of all. And I wanted to be the guy that our, 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 my teammates counted on. Um, it was important for me. It became important for me. And I wore it as a medal to be the first guy out the gate to start game one of the division series or start game one of the World Series. Um, I've always felt that if I was on the mound, I gave us our best chance to win a baseball game and it didn't have to be a game where we scored a ton of runs. Um, if we scored one run, then I was going to pitch well enough to win one to nothing. If we scored two, then it was going to be two to nothing or two to one. But I always felt that I was going to give us our best chance to win a baseball game. And that's no offense to Mike Moore or Bobby Welch. They probably all felt the same as I did. Um, in an opportunity to, to start a game in a playoff or a series. But I really um, wanted that opportunity. I wanted to be in that place, and I wanted the opportunity to give us a chance to win a game. You know, you were part of some really great teams. Obviously, the 81 Dodgers, the 93 Blue Jays. But the 89 A's, you guys were – and I was in high school at the time, and you guys were rock stars. I mean – you had such big personalities. You had star players. You were a star. Canseco, McGuire, and Ricky Henderson, Dennis Eckersley. What was it like being around this group and traveling the country with this group? Because you guys truly were like rock stars. We were just everyday guys having fun doing what we did as kids, but on a bigger stage. Um, it was great to have Dave Parker in the clubhouse who kept us laughing and Dave Henderson was another piece of of the comedy act on a day-to-day -day basis and Ricky Henderson um one of the greatest players that you'll ever see put on a on a uniform uh, and a childhood friend having the opportunity to see him play be in the same clubhouse with him watch him do the things that he did and and single-handedly in some cases, destroy a team was absolutely unbelievable. And McGuire and Canseco, they were unbelievable teammates and, and players. And to, to watch the power display, uh, we could beat you in a lot of different ways. Um, we had a, we had a tremendous pitching staff. Mike Moore, Bobby Welch, um, your bullpen with Dennis Eckersley and and. Gene Nelson and Rick Honeycutt, there were just a lot of ways that we could beat you. And, and when we went into spring training, our goal was to score a run, score, 100, uh, score 800 runs if we could, which was a lot of runs. 
um, to score during the course of a season, but that was our goal. Score If we can score 800 runs, we knew we'd pitch well enough and we'd defend well enough. We're underrated. We were underrated, I think, as, as, a, as a defensive team. So to be in that atmosphere every day with the laughter and having fun and challenging each other every day and having the same goals, um, I, I don't know that you'll ever experience that. I know for a fact that the, the, the mediocre teams don't don't experience it. Uh, the teams that have the, the the ability to have those type of players, if you're lucky enough to have that many different personalities and still get along on a day-to-day basis, basically checking your ego at the door and working for the same things, um, that's what the game is about. On this date in baseball history, your childhood friend and very good friend, Ricky Henderson, breaks the all-time stolen base record. When he was going through that, what was it like to watch him just day after day just steal so many bases and set a record that clearly will never be touched in our lifetime? When it became clear, which that was even before the season started, that that record was going to be broken. I don't think that I watched Ricky come to the ballpark. I don't believe it was part of his agenda to play the game for individual um, accolades. I don't think that was his agenda. I will say that that wasn't his agenda. Ricky's enjoyment was putting his talents on display and having people enjoy him and want to be like him if you're a child. That was his enjoyment, watching people, having people watch him and enjoy his style of play, having kids at the at the ballparks around our neighborhood, and once again, an Oakland native, having kids say, I want to be Ricky Henderson or Ricky Henderson's on first base or whatever the case may be. That was his goal when the season started. That was his goal as a player when he first came into the game. So watching him creep up on that on that monumental moment, achievement, um, it was just unbelievable. Unbelievable. There's nothing like it. You know, the NFL Network does a, a series called A Football Life, and I wish the MLB Network would do that because – When I think of your baseball life, you know, you could have gone and played football. You got a lot of offers to play college football. How smart were you not to play college football and to sign with the Dodgers? Well, very smart. When you graduate from high school and you're only 5'10 instead of 6'2, which that's what it was for me. I I hadn't even reached my, my growth. I was 190 pounds colleges that I visited, the average height was 6'5", 6'6", 280 pounds. So believe me, it wasn't by any, there was no accident that baseball was the sport that I picked. And I'm glad that I picked it. Um, I wasn't, in my opinion, a very, very good baseball athlete coming out of high school. Um, It was a sport that I really had to work at. And I, I ended up playing the game because my cousins played it and all my friends played it. Um, you know, Willie Mays was the first player um, as a kid that I can remember watching and having an opportunity to meet and then Reggie Jackson's influence. And um, 
so I'm I'm glad that I, I I picked baseball to play, and even more importantly, I'm glad that I had the influences in my life as a young player going through the minor leagues and early on in the big leagues to influence me and teach me how to play the game and how to respect and honor it, which I think is the biggest part for me. And I'll I'll say this every day: I wasn't the best player, um, or I wasn't that great of a player talent-wise. Um, I had to work at it on a day-to-day basis. Um, to be able to do some of the things that I was able to accomplish. Well, you were pretty darn good. Let's be honest. And you think when you're when you're a World Series MVP, you're a two-time ALCS MVP, you're a three-time World Series champion. You got a no-hitter. You're in the A's Hall of Fame. And when I think about your baseball life, from a player, I mean, you were a pitching coach in the World Series with the Padres in '98. You've been a GM. You've been a broadcaster. I mean, really, when you look at your career, you've pretty much done everything you can do in this game. Just about. I mean, there's one other thing that I, I, I guess I could try to campaign to do, which is manage a team, but that's uh, that's never really been on my agenda. I've, you know, I've been really, really fortunate and blessed. Uh, God's really blessed me with the opportunity to be involved in the game. This is my 44th year that I've been in or around the game of baseball and um, to have the opportunity to play, first of all, is a dream because most don't get the opportunity to do that. Then the the second part of it was to go into management. And I'll always be grateful to the Haas family and Sandy Alderson uh, for allowing me that opportunity upon retirement, asking me what I wanted to do, having the relationship with Walter and Wally Haas um, to work for the A's in, in the capacity that I did in the front office, and then going on to Kevin Towers and the Padres and Kevin Towers and, and the Padres, and and then, you know, the opportunity to coach, which Kevin um, was the only one that would have thought that I'd be able to coach uh, pitching staff and somehow uh, got me to do it and it turned out well and so I mean there's just been different influences and people that have been influential in my life uh, in the game of baseball Davey Lopes, Bert Hooten, Don Sutton, I can name Sandy Koufax, I can name tons of people that have really touched me in a in a positive way that's made me fall in love with this game and want to be a part of it. I remember you bringing up Sandy Koufax, which is just amazing. It, it was it was it Sandy who taught you the uh, split finger fastball. Sandy taught me the split. Sandy was the guy behind me lowering my cap. <laughs> All the things that you may consider to be my trademark, um, Sandy had a part of it. Yeah, Sandy, who has huge hands. Um, I was having a really, really rough season in the in the '82 season, and uh, was having a tough time getting people out out of the bullpen. I was pitching out of the pen, and Sandy came to me and he says, "Do you throw a two seamer?" And I said, uh, "No, I'm strictly four seam." And so he grabs a baseball and he puts his hand on the baseball, which a two seam for him would be what it turned out to be for me, which started out as a split finger. And then eventually I I started moving the fingers along the sides of the ball a little bit more and turned it into a fork ball. But 
it was meant to be a two seam fastball, uh, but it, it looked to me in watching him demonstrate the pitch to be a split. And that's what I continued. That's how I ended up with the, with the fork ball. <laughs> that's one of the greatest stories of all time. Sandy Koufax is pitching. Sandy Koufax. Is teaching you your money pitch that would carry you through your career. That is absolutely awesome. Dave, thank you so much for doing this. I know this is, you know, we're, at, in these times, we're trying to help people heal and make them feel better. And I know them hearing your voice makes them feel better. I know it does for me. Thank you so much. You're an A's legend. We always appreciate the time. And I can't wait to see you again up in the treehouse when you're going to be doing A's pre and post game live. Well, I got to tell you what, now I, I'd, I'd be I'd be nothing but ungrateful if I didn't uh, really pay tribute to the to the doctors and the nurses you know, everybody that's been out there to, to help make this process a little bit smoother. You know, we've lost a lot of people, but those people are battling. They're on the front lines, and they're being they're being the real heroes in, in what we're doing here. And hopefully we can take our part after we get through this, this crisis and, and bring some happiness back to these families and bring some joy to them. Uh, but my hat's off to all of the first responders, the people who've been really on the front lines and battling this thing for us. Well said. Thank you so much. Be safe, be well, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. From Dave Stewart to another A's legend, Sandy Alderson. You look at Sandy's career as a GM, won the World Series in 1989, three-time American League champion, one-time National League champion as he got the Mets to the World Series, the 2015 Baseball America Executive of the Year Award. Sandy is a gentleman. He is a legend in our game. Here is Sandy Alderson. He's one of the great executives in the history of our game. He's a World Series champion with your Oakland Athletics and still a part of our franchise and our front office. Great Sandy Alderson joins us here on A's Cast Live. Thank you, Sandy, for taking the time. We truly appreciate it. Well, <clears throat> As with most of us, I got plenty of time, so I'm happy to do it. You know, on this day in baseball history, Ricky Henderson broke the all-time stolen base record. You know, when you think about your time with Ricky Henderson, truly one of the great players and one of the more interesting players you ever had. No, he was uh, not only one of the most interesting, but in terms of players I saw play, you know, in person, in their prime, um, he was the greatest I ever saw. And uh, I do remember that day. I didn't, didn't remember the, the exact uh, date until uh, reminded of it. But I remember the day I stole third base. Uh, Lou Brock was in the house. Um, and, uh, of course, it was great that he stole the base. And uh, then he... Then he started talking about being the greatest of all time, right in the presence of Lou Brock. It got a little uncomfortable at that point, but um, that was Ricky. And in retrospect, um, what else could one have expected? So um, it, it was a, it was an interesting day. In fact, I can still remember the perspective when I, because I was sitting kind of up high and behind home plate. And uh, um, so anyway, it was a memorable day. Yeah, I mean, and, and and to think that all the players that you saw in your career and that you get to still see today and to say that Ricky's the greatest of all time, 
And and I know we 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 last spoke down in San Diego at the winter meetings when you talked about bringing Ricky Henderson back that you guys had to have a real conversation. Should we do this or should we not? There's an interesting relationship there when we remember what Ricky was like for the A's. Well, you know, we had traded Ricky uh, prior to the 95 season, I think, um, 94 season. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out why we traded him. Um, but we did. We got a nice package of players in return. Um, uh, but, you know, getting him back was really the key to our 1989 season and World Series victory because um, uh, I know Jose Canseco was out for a good part of that season, but really Ricky was kind of the difference between the 88 uh, team and the 89 season. He just was phenomenal uh, when he came back over to Oakland. He he wasn't having a great year with New York at the time, but uh, uh, he was phenomenal for us. And of course, you know, he won the MVP the following year in 1990. So, um, now there, you know, there may be, there's some great players out there, Mike Trout and maybe one or two others that, uh, I've seen play, but in terms of an overall career and somebody whose career one can now look back on with some perspective and, uh, detachment, um, you know, he, he was, he was the best I ever saw. You know, we've been celebrating the 1972, 73, 74 teams here on Ace Cast and Alma and Alma and uh, also on NBC Sports California. And I'm assuming that coming up here, we're probably going to be talking a lot about your 1989 championship team, which I look back, you know, I was in high school at the time. And I look back at those guys as rock stars like this team was just incredible. It was star studded. It was so dominant. When you look back at 1989, what do you think about when you think about that ball club you built? Well, it was, it, you know, it was, it was a great team. Um, I mean, I don't know what great means in the, you know, overall um, <clears throat> history of the game, but certainly it was a great team for that era. And, uh, and the other thing that was, not only was it good, but it was colorful and entertaining. And I think that, honestly, that's something we've lost side of over the last 20 years in the game is how important it is to be entertaining as well as uh, competent as a team. But um, it was a lot of fun to be associated with that team. You know, I think we, we led the, you know, we led the league, if not all of baseball, I'm sure we led all of baseball in road attendance. So in, in a sense, we were the Yankees of that period. Uh, and, you know, the reason people were interested in us is because they hated us like they hate and continue to hate the Yankees. Um, when you bring all those personalities in and then kick their butts, uh, fans don't appreciate it. The opposition didn't appreciate it. Uh, but it was a lot of fun to have uh, all those personalities and uh, um, collectively such a strong team. Yeah, you mentioned the entertaining part and, you know, watching The Last Dance, and we'll get into Michael Jordan with you because you've made some headlines, but, you know, those Bulls teams, you know, they talk about how they had to go in through the kitchen when they went through hotels, and the A's were like that too. 
because there were so many stars on the A's. So when you when you look at that A's team, you look at this Bulls team that we're celebrating on ESPN. Yeah, there is something about the these guys being more than just baseball players. They were they were looked at as like real celebrities. Well, I think the one difference between our team and the Bulls is that there was there wasn't at the time a real focal point in the sense that um, Michael Jordan was with the Bulls. I mean, Jose Canseco made a lot of headlines for a variety of reasons, uh, but he still didn't reach the stature of, uh, of a Michael Jordan. Uh, and of course, Jordan had tremendous success as a perennial NBA champion as well. Uh, but we just had a collection of guys that, and probably more so than, uh, you know, the Bulls. That's a five-man sport. Uh, we Ours is a 9-10, depending on, you know, the pitchers and so forth. But I just think we had, we had a lot of different personalities. Um, you know, Ricky Henderson obviously was one of those. Um, but Jose Canseco um, was out there. Um, Dave Stewart. Dennis Eckersley, um, we just had a cast of characters that was uh, um, really phenomenal. Yeah, it was a, it was an amazing group. Now, you recently went on with Buster Only, and we love to have him also on, on our program, talking about Michael Jordan and that you would add a spot for, my, for Michael on, on the big league roster. Uh, when, when you go back and think about that, what would have that been like if Michael Jordan was an Oakland A? Well, it would have been fun <laughs> and entertaining and uh, would have garnered quite a bit of attention, which, you know, when you're talking about sports and entertainment is uh, sort of uh, the name of the game. Um, you know, this was, I forget the year it was, but, uh, you know, we, were, we weren't going anywhere at the time. And um, uh, so when I saw that he was leaving basketball to consider baseball, I I did call his agent and, uh, um, you know, proposed that he, he come to the major league level immediately. Um, you know, what's interesting for me is why he even wanted to play baseball. And I think that's kind of an untold story. I don't know why the heck he left the NBA at that time. Uh, um, my guess is there's, there's more to that story than we actually know. But when I heard he was going to go to double a, I, you know, I reached out and offered him a position and thought, you know why not in the in the uh, same vein as uh, Herbie Washington and some of the other uh, kind of goofy uh, player roster um, moves that have been made in history by some of the great showmen of the game like Bill Veck and uh, um, and even Charlie Finley. Uh, it was sort of one of those why not uh, deals. What, what was you know what was the harm? And um, um, so anyway didn't work out and uh, I was hopeful that the agent would remember that call uh, some you know what 25 years later uh, but he did acknowledge it so I was happy to see that I um, didn't didn't uh, uh, conjure this up in my mind over 25 or 30 years but uh, anyway didn't work out you know, Sandy, I I'm totally with you. I think there was more to the story than just he wanted to get away from basketball. And for some reason, you know, he stays with the Chicago White Sox, who are, the Bulls are, are owned by Reinsdorf. So he stays in the Reinsdorf family. He goes to double A and doesn't, you know, 
you, you gave him an opportunity to be in the big leagues. I wonder if he was worried about being exposed so early. I mean, not playing baseball for all those years and then being in the big leagues would have been really, really tough. How do you think you would have utilized him? Well, I'm, I'm not sure how we would have utilized him. I mean, given the fact that uh, Tony LaRusse is such a sort of a strict uh, by the book traditionalist, I'm not sure how much he could have been used, but um, you know, 25th man on the roster, uh, do some pinch hitting, maybe hit late in the game. Um, you know, you don't use your bench as much, uh, in the American league as you do in the national league, but, um, uh, and, and particularly in those days, there wasn't a lot of platooning. So, you know, we would have used him. I'm sure he would have been, uh, um, you know, he would have played, but, uh, um, and, and I'm sure that he would have been used more because of uh, fan interest and demand. Um, but again, you know, it was uh, it was one of those things that we would have figured out uh, after the fact if he had signed, but uh, didn't happen. And I don't recall um, uh, consulting with anybody either. It was the one I talked to Tony and say, okay, but how do we use this guy? It wasn't the the proposal wasn't made in that vein. Uh, it was um, really something that uh, um, had more fan appeal value than it did uh, baseball appeal. And I was talking to Billy Bean the other day, and I don't recall. And he 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 kind of acknowledged that that um, he didn't recall me talking to him about it. Um, so it was you know it was one of those spur of the moment things. You know, when you talk about Charlie Finley, I think about your illustrious career with the A's and you ran the Padres, you ran the Mets, you got the Mets to the World Series. Can you imagine Charlie Finley led the A's to three straight World Series titles? They're in the playoffs from 71 to 75. And he did this from Chicago where he wasn't able to see the games. He had to listen to them on the phone. He was the owner of the GM. I mean, when you look back and you think about what Charlie Fenley did, just that the craziness of it, you'd never see it again. Well, yeah, in some respects it was crazy, and certainly you'll never see it again because the game is so much more uh, institutional and corporate and process-oriented. But, you know, uh, I think the one thing that was consistent between the Finley era and the Haas era was a willingness to take chances, a willingness to do the unorthodox, um, not constrained by conventional wisdom. And I think Charlie, um, while he wasn't known for that, I think in retrospect, um, he very clearly was um, you know, an early mover. And the one thing that I think of quite often was his, is his uh, draft strategy. I mean, he had a lot of success with um, signing free agents like Blue Moon Odom and so forth. But one of the things that he did um, was very early on after the draft was adopted, I think in 1965, was draft college players as opposed to high school players. And if you think back to the teams that he built, um, and I'm thinking of Reggie Jackson out of Arizona State, uh, Sal Bando, um, you know, one or two others, um, he was really ahead of the curve when it came to um, a draft strategy in those early days. 
And those were, you know, many of the players were the cornerstone of his, uh, of his championships. So um, he was a guy who was willing to take some chances. Now, whether that was because he was just um, uh, not terribly experienced in the game and, you know, the development of players, et cetera, et cetera. There's something he had. There was an eye that he had, and uh, um, but I think he was willing to take a risk. And I think that was true of us with the Haas family also after we got involved because we weren't limited by uh, any sort of experience uh, in the game. You know, uh, Roy Eisenhart, myself, Wally Haas, we were willing to try new things. And um, that's when analytics, you know, we adopted analytics early in the 80s. Um, why? Because I, for example, had no way to, to evaluate players. I wasn't a scout. I wasn't this. I wasn't that. I hadn't been in the game very long. I had to come up with something. And uh, the analytical approach was probably more comprehensible and, and somewhat convincing to me than um, what else was available. Just to give you an example um, of kind of uh, – uh, less than conventional wisdom. When we did trade Ricky, the Yankees, we got five players back. And what I asked for from the, from the Yankees were the top five players in their system based on a baseball America article that had recently been published. Wow. So, um, anyway, the point is that, you know, I think, I think, uh, Charlie was willing to take some, some risks and so were we, um, uh, as as a way of maybe making up for a lack of uh, experience and understanding of the game. You know, let's end on this. And I know we kind of addressed this down in San Diego where we talked about in the end, this is still entertainment and we want to get people's entertainment dollar and making baseball more entertaining. And when we get this thing going once again, do you see this as a really good time to experiment with, I don't know, different ideas, different rules from the commissioner to kind of experience, to make this game a little more exciting, make this game a little more faster, you know, because all these games that we're seeing in the 70s are all well under three hours. Do you see this time as a time where we could make some change and experiment? Uh-huh. Well, uh, that's a complicated, it's a good question, but I think a complicated one. For example, with respect to what's going to happen here in the next few months, I think we got to be careful about adding too much gimmickry to what already is going to be uh, a much different form of the competition with perhaps new divisions geographically and a host of other accommodations just for the for the uh, this pandemic. On the other hand, you know, when we see how fans react to some of these new alignments um, uh, and maybe one or two um, uh, rules changes like adoption of the DH across all of baseball, you know, for this interim period, then I think it opens up fans. It opens up the game for more experimentation, but, you know, in the short term, I'd be careful about changing too many things because it's already going to be kind of a goofy season. And I think we've got to preserve as much as we can of what, of what people expect out of the game. But hopefully this will open us up to a new normal and the new normal will be uh, an opportunity for us to change the game in positive ways. Um, I really think that, you know, what's happened with the analytics 
over the years is that we've we've solved all problems for uh, efficiency, um, and we haven't solved problems in the game uh, for other considerations like entertainment value. Um, there's so many things that we've lost. Take, for example, instant replay. As a result of instant replay, we really have no controversy um, between managers and umpires. And this may seem like a, um, a small thing, but I used to love arguments between umpires and, uh, and managers. And it was, you know, it was, it was an art on the part of many people, but now we've lost it. It was harmless. It really was harmless. You know, you get these arguments and nothing happens. Nobody gets clocked, you know, in the jaw. Nobody, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, <clears throat> sort of a pantomime almost, but, um, but it was fun. And it was a nice, you know, counterpoint to everything else that was going on in the game. So um, those are the kinds of things we've lost. Uh, and when I talk about efficiency, it's not about time of game. It's about um, squeezing the highest probability of success uh, out of, you know, based on, on um, uh, statistical analysis. It's why we have shifts, for example. But, and it's one of the reasons we have very few stolen bases these days. Which is one of the one of the one of the things that I'm really happy about is baseball is now experimenting with ways to improve stolen base rates, which may make it more attractive even to analysts, uh, you know, as a tactic within the game. And why? Because it's kind of an entertaining element of the game. Um, so anyway, I, with respect to changes, I'm for changes, but I think in this you know period during 2020, assuming we get a season back. Got to be a little bit careful about um, how we doctor up the game um, uh, because there are going to be um, there are going to be some changes that uh, are inevitable just because of uh, how we come back. You know, one of the things that we've been trying to do with this show, Sandy, is bring on familiar voices for A's fans, and obviously your voice is one of the most familiar with all A's fans. So it's great to talk to you. Thank you so much for the time. Be safe, be well, and we'll talk to you soon. You take care. All right. Thanks a lot. Enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Well, that's going to do it for A's Unfiltered. We want to thank Sean Doolittle. We want to thank Sean Manaya, Dave Stewart, and Sandy Alderson. Now back to A's Cast, powered by TuneIn. This has been a presentation of the Oakland Athletics. 